0: Some human societies are more successful than others, we all know that. The wealth of nations is different across the globe. And a major question of history and economics is why? Here's where it gets interesting. Scholars maintain that the roots of economic inequality go back more than 10,000 years. They started with geography and the natural environment, with some places more conducive than others to human development. Then, over the centuries, generation to generation, people in different places have passed on different characteristics up to the present day. So here's the next big question. Is it too late for those differences to be overcome? Does geography have to be destiny? Roman Voxiar says no. He's a professor of economics at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, where he holds the Hans huffschmidt chair. He says underdeveloped nations can escape what might seem to be the straitjacket of history. <music> Hello again, I'm Warren Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast of UCLA Anderson. Professor Roman Voxiar, welcome aboard. Thank you, Warren, for having me. All right, you quote Winston Churchill with a very interesting observation. He says, the longer you can look back, the farther you can see forward. Tell us how that idea shapes your research. Well,
1: it shapes my research a lot. Basically, I'm concerned with understanding the deep roots of current economic outcomes, meaning the historical factors that have led to the current distribution of wealth around the world. And it's a broad project that involves multiple scholars who have worked now for several decades on trying to identify what these characteristics of early societies that still matter today are, and to try to understand how wealth can spread around the world, overcoming some of the barriers that these historical factors impose on human societies.
0: Well, tell us about geography particularly, and how it starts there, and what impact it's had, and what other factors are involved. Well, in many ways, everything
1: starts with geography. The spread of humans around the world was constrained by the shape of continents. The emergence of technologies like agriculture was shaped by climate and other characteristics of the soil, the uh, weather, and the shape of continents, as you know, my colleague at UCLA, uh, Jared Diamond, famously argued. But then the question becomes, how did this transmit through the centuries at times where geography didn't matter so much? to affect incomes directly. So we know that today, you know, through uh, various technologies like air conditioning, we can overcome some of the drawbacks of certain geographic areas, but yet the initial historical conditions that led to the emergence of agriculture in some places but not others still seem to to matter today. So for example, if you try to predict today's income per capita around the world, you're gonna do pretty well by looking at just a small set of variables that are correlated with geography, for example, latitude, some climactic variables, more importantly, maybe even the uh, recency with which societies have adopted agriculture. The, The longer the experience you've had with agriculture in history, the richer you tend to be today. Obviously, these relationships aren't perfect, but they're strongly predictive of outcomes today. And the question is, why is that the case?
0: Well, what makes for the differences, if that's the case, that have evolved?
1: The view, I think, among scholars now is that geography only has a limited effect directly on income, that most of the effect is indirect, and in particular, that the emergence of complex societies, societies in which you have various levels of government hierarchy, where you have a large scale of operation, where you have specialized functions to take care of public goods for example historically you might have humans that come together to develop irrigation infrastructure to help agriculture become more productive these things you know have transmitted over the generations have remained persistent and the historical sources of differences in development outcomes that are mostly geographic in nature have had this persistent effect because they've shaped societies differently the big challenge in this Whole literature is to really disentangle the causal chain and figure out how early development advantages and technological advantages translate into today's distribution of income.
0: So how far back do you have to go?
1: I think right now people go mostly as far back as the Neolithic revolution, which was the invention of agriculture in some human societies, arguably in seven different places, but the most important one that everyone knows about is Mesopotamia where sedentary agriculture emerged during the Ice Age and and the subsequent flourishing of human societies around the globe. So that's pretty much as far as, as we go. You can go farther back, I suppose, to try to understand the sources of why different geographies have different characteristics. And, you know, in a recent paper with a, a large number of co-authors in Science Advances, we looked at data from a project that's a fascinating initiative called Sechat, and Seishat is a consortium of scholars around the world. Hundreds of people are involved in coding data on various characteristics of human societies. In the initial version of the data set, there's 35 natural geographic areas in which we code everything we know about these societies going back to about 5,000 years ago. And that's about the time of the invention of writing in the Sumerian civilization and tracing back at 100-year intervals everything we know about human societies up to today. And the idea is that by doing this in a systematic and quantitative way, we will be able to parse the timing of the development of complex societies and to identify the factors that have led to their emergence. Of course, the big one is agriculture. Uh, As I mentioned, the initial trigger for the expansion of the scale of human societies, for the development of complex governmental organizations, has been the invention of agriculture. Perhaps more importantly than that, we find that in societies that already had the ability to generate agricultural surplus and to have people specialize in different occupations as opposed to being constantly engaged in in these societies, there tended to be Also, differential development of military technologies, and in particular, the arrival of iron and the arrival of cavalry greatly facilitated the ability of these societies to project force beyond a small geographic area and ultimately to conquer others and create societies that have larger scale. And so in that paper, not only does agriculture matter, but also the ability of humans to resort to violence against other societies which ultimately led to a greater scale of human societies. One striking fact is the uh, response of social complexity to the adoption of cavalryism as a method of warfare and it takes a few hundred years after the horse is introduced and used for military purposes for societies to uh, graduate so to speak to higher levels of complexity.
0: Well, obviously, I would think the possession of horses uh, would differ geographically from place to place. Yes, it did. And it diffused. What's
1: interesting with the invention of the horse is that it was a process of gradual diffusion throughout the globe. You can really think about it as a sort of shock that hits different groups of humans in different places at different times. And so you can trace the effects of that shock on subsequent development. And what you find when you do that is that cavalry was a very important. Factor in the development of complex societies.
0: Well, why did one society then want to make war on another if it was geographically superior? If, for example, it had horses, uh, presumably uh, that could improve its quality of life. Why'd they have to go someplace else? I think the
1: tendency to want to accumulate power and wealth is probably the main motivator that drove societies to try to achieve greater scale. But with scale also come all sorts of Advantages, And in particular, the ability to have more specialization, to generate more wealth. Maybe the Roman Empire would be one example of, of that expansion of this process of expanding civilization throughout a broader and broader geographic area. I'm not sure what the underlying motivation for that is. I do observe that when humans have the means to take their neighbor's stuff, they tend to do it.
0: When we were chatting earlier, you told me that as a result of your research, you had gotten a call from the National Security Council. What do they want to know?
1: Oh, I have a paper
0: about conflict
1: between societies that argues that culturally closer societies tend to go to war with each other more. And that's when you look at international conflict, that is sovereign states going at each other's throats using violence. It was very much in line with whole research agenda on barriers, because if you think that technologies can transmit more easily between societies that are close to each other, both geographically close and culturally close, it follows from that idea that even bad interactions could also spread faster or involve societies that are closer to each other, simply because the barriers to their interactions are, are lower. So it won't surprise you to know that uh, societies that are geographically close tend to go to war with each other much more because it's easier for Germany to invade France than it is for Germany to invade Mongolia. It is also the case that societies that are culturally close to each other, for example, that have languages that are closer, tend to go to war uh, with each other more, even controlling for geographic distance. It's, of course, a little harder to establish statistically, but it, it is the case. And so this bad interaction, which is conflict, is also facilitated by proximity. It's another example of, in this case, you could say a salutary barrier that keeps societies from getting into conflict with each other more. And so the reason I got the call from the National Security Council is they were interested in finding out whether the U.S. and China were going to go to war. And they called me and said, you know, your your article arguing that cultural distance hinders or limits conflict between societies. What implications does that have with respect to the possibility that the US would go to war with China? Well, you have to be guarded in these sorts of predictions because these factors are never overwhelming in their ability to predict outcomes. They're usually relatively limited in quantitatively in their ability to explain things. Even though it is the case that human societies that are culturally closer tend to go to war with each other, and so the implication would be that this lowers the probability that the U.S. would go to war with China because of the cultural distance between the two countries, particularly the linguistic distance.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And uh, one has assumed that they depend so much on intelligence of what exactly the Chinese are thinking. The Chinese want to know what the Americans are thinking rather than looking at the long thrust of history. Uh, fascinated that they called you. What did you tell them? Um I basically told them that I didn't think that you could use
1: that research to really predict conflict with any degree of confidence, again, because these factors are not quantitatively so overwhelming that you can then say, you know, we're going from a probability of conflict of, say, 3% to a probability of 20%, which would be a huge effect. And so I was quite guarded in my in my response. I think that other factors are much more important than that. I also think the notion that globalization allows you to overcome barriers also holds for these kinds of negative barriers when you have the ability to send a gigantic balloon over the United States to look at uh, nuclear infrastructure and therefore uh, to overcome the geographic barrier that exists between China and the U.S. in the gathering of intelligence, you suddenly make it more likely that conflict will occur. Though I don't think that's the case in this particular instance, but it's a a recent example of how technology and the ability to project force uh, at vast distances can actually raise the probability of conflict rather than reduce it.
0: And of course, China says that the big balloon was just to check out the weather, you know, didn't have any uh, military consequences at all. How did Europe get to be where it was, and why did the Industrial Revolution begin there rather than one of those places that might have been geographically more preferable earlier on?
1: Well, that's a great question, and it's one on which I think there are still huge debates and where it's largely unresolved. There is a question about comparing Mesopotamia to Europe for sure, but there's also a question of comparing Europe to China and why. Uh, Europe ultimately became wealthier than China, although that process might have been quite temporary, you know, time will tell in the next few decades. There are many answers to this question, and I'm not sure I have a a very strong take on which one is more pertinent. Let me try one. I have a student, Christopher Pike, who wrote his thesis on this subject of why uh, Europe ultimately became more wealthy than, say, Mesopotamia or the area around the Middle East. And he talks about a reversal of fortune that occurred during the second millennium. He observes that if you actually look at the distribution of wealth about 2,000 years ago, for sure you will find that areas of the Middle East that had already a long exposure to agriculture would be more developed along a variety of dimensions than continental Europe was, and, for example, than the British Isles were. You know, not very developed economically at that time. They, in fact, uh, were among the last societies in Europe to adopt agriculture because agriculture in Europe was uh, part of the Middle Eastern diffusion. They adopted the methods of agriculture that were developed in the Middle East. And so if you look at, at, at how soon agriculture was adopted in Europe, you know, Greece and the Italian peninsula were pretty early and the British Isles were pretty late because they're farther away. And there were bands of hunter gatherers uh, still in the British Isles for a very long time. And so my students view is that uh, the types of cultural traits that are helpful in industrial society tend to be facilitated when you've had a long exposure to hunting and gathering, particularly individualism, the sense uh, that human groups are relatively small scale and very decentralized. That's helpful when you have a society that prizes entrepreneurialism and the development of new technologies, whereas if you've had a long experience with agriculture, larger scale societies, centralization, you tend to develop more collectivistic kinds of approaches that are less suited to an industrial era. And so his explanation is that having gotten agriculture late was actually a good thing for England when the industrial revolution came about and the steam engine was invented because then the culture was more suited to that type of technology. It's a very interesting story. I, I think it's not the only one, but it's certainly an intriguing one and I think one that has quite a bit of support in the data.
0: What about the sharing of characteristics that has obviously gone on and how does that come about and how is it that barriers of geography were ultimately overcome so that that could take place? Well, in the initial stages,
1: it was a very slow and gradual process, mostly limited by geographic barriers. Uh, mountain ranges, oceans, and seas You know, prevent the transmission of technologies across vast areas. For example, there was virtually no transmission of technology from the old world to the new world until the new world was discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492, because the barriers were so overwhelming that these societies couldn't communicate with each other. The example of agriculture suggests that geography has a lot to do with the diffusion because it fanned out across areas pretty much in proportion to how far they were from Iraq and Iran, you know, the original innovators, the, the areas today, the, na- the countries today that where the innovation initially uh, took place. I think another dimension that Enrico Spolaure and myself have looked at over a decade or two, I guess we've been working on this, is uh, the issue of cultural distance. The notion that it is harder to transmit technologies between societies that don't speak the same languages, don't share the same values, you know, don't interact with each other as frequently. And it is easier to spread technologies to societies that are not just geographically, but also culturally closer to the innovator. So for the example of the Industrial Revolution, If you look at its spread around the world, even at relatively large distances, for example, uh, the spread of modern technologies from England to the US, the spread of modern technologies from England to Australia and New Zealand, which are geographically very distant but culturally very close, was much more rapid than you would have expected just based on geography. Cultural barriers play a big role. When you say this, that geography and culture are the barriers to the spread of Traits and technologies and institutions that make societies rich, it opens up the possibility that these barriers can be overcome. And what we've noticed with my co author is if you look at the very recent past, the very recent innovations, they've tended to spread around the world much faster than ancient innovations. And the reason is globalization. It is much easier today to transmit knowledge across borders because people move around, goods move around, ideas move around. Uh, You know, there's more financial links between societies and all of those links that I would define as globalization have facilitated the transmission of technologies around the world. So we've seen an acceleration of the extent to which uh, societies that do not have historical preconditions for advanced technologies can actually adopt these technologies. And you've seen a process over the last 20 or 30 years Uh, gradual convergence, which is sort of unprecedented in the history of mankind, really, where societies like India and China that previously had relatively low per capita incomes compared to the Western technological frontier have caught up extremely rapidly. And I think the credit must go to globalization because it's the most powerful force to allow human societies to overcome the barriers to the transmission of
0: wealth. When you talk about development, what do you actually mean? Do you mean material development and uh, per capita income or something else. For example, it's often said that development didn't happen in the new world and that industrialization and the discovery of the new world was actually a curse to uh, people who lived there and who, to some great extent, have largely been replaced.
1: It was a, a huge curse. It was one of the most devastating events in human history. It did have the effect of connecting the old world to the new world in ways that ultimately, I think when you fast-forward several hundreds of years, you know, has allowed technologies invented elsewhere to spread universally across the New World. The process was certainly an extremely destructive and extractive, and uh, I'm not even sure how to what words to use to describe the colonial uh, experience, but uh, I would view it as sort of part of a broader process of historical connecting societies, in this case, through violence, extraction, and exploitation, but ultimately to create a world that has become global. It has by no means been a peaceful process. Uh, As illustrated by my paper on military technologies, it is in fact a process that has been very often driven by violence and, and extraction and greed and all the rest.
0: What about conflict within nations and does the same thing hold? Are people who are similar to one another, more likely to get into conflict within a nation or not? No, it doesn't
1: hold in the same uh, way. In fact, if you look within nations, it tends to be the places that have more cultural diversity within the country that have more conflict. At least when you're looking at societies that are not highly developed and where there are no institutional ways to channel conflict into more productive directions to avoid conflict to reduce the probability of conflict so if you look for example at the most ethnically divided societies in africa they tend to have a lot of ethnic conflict and the reason there is because they don't fight over the same thing with my co-author enrico spolaure we're we're fond of a little example to illustrate that. If you and I you know, have very different preferences over what TV show to uh, watch and we're in the same living room and there's only one TV, we're more likely to fight over the remote control and who's going to control the channel that we watch. And so in this case, having very different preferences and being from different groups is likely to lead to more conflict rather than less. But if we're fighting over a sandwich, there's a chicken sandwich, and I actually don't like chicken, or maybe I'm a vegetarian and you like chicken, and so we differ along that dimension, we're less likely to fight over this good because it's a rival good. Only one of us can have the chicken, whereas both of us would be watching the TV channel. And so being very different or having a lot of heterogeneity reduces our propensity to fight with each other over the chicken sandwich, but having more diversity And more heterogeneity of preferences makes it more likely we're going to fight over the public good, which is the TV channel we're going to both have to watch. Uh, I don't know if that helps, but it shows that the determinants of conflict when you're talking about things like territory between nations are going to be very different from the determinant of conflicts when you're talking about control of government and public goods that everyone has to share within a nation.
0: You said earlier that the Industrial Revolution happened much faster than the Agricultural Revolution. How about the development of the United States in that context? Yes, the Industrial Revolution
1: diffused much faster from its originator than did Agricultural Revolution, which took a lot longer to diffuse across space. I think the U.S. is special in many, many ways, but you should not underestimate the extent to which the U.S enjoyed the benefits of early technological development, both agriculture and the Industrial Revolution, because the population that ended up conquering the US and occupying most of the the land in the US was a population that itself did have a long exposure to these initial historical advantages. And so I have a set of colleagues at Brown University that specialize in what's now known as ancestry adjustment, where you don't look at the history of locations, you look at the history of the people who inhabit these locations. Because the idea is that the early advantages are transmitted from par- you know intergenerationally from parents to children. It's not a characteristic of where they live that matters. It's a characteristic of who their ancestors were. And when you do that, you see that you know it becomes much easier to explain why the U.S. you know, which is composed right now, I think about seventy percent of descendants of Europeans who did enjoy the advantages of having had an early Industrial Revolution, why the US developed so rapidly.
0: Does this get you into the dispute about the inheritance of acquired characteristics? That's been going on for a long time.
1: Not really, because the way we understand the transmission of these characteristics is that they're mostly transmitted culturally. Much like language would be, you know, there's not a gene for speaking French, but you learn French because your parents speak French, and that's the language you learn when you're a child. The view is that most of the traits that we think matter, for example, you know, I mentioned individualism versus collectivism. I don't think there's a gene for that. It's basically transmitted from parents to children. And it can change. It evolves. You know, culture is not something that stays fixed. There's a big part of political science, sociology, now increasingly in economics, devoted to studying cultural evolution and the changes that exist. And you see them in every modern society. You know, one of my favorite scholars is Ron Englehart, who unfortunately passed away uh, quite recently. Ron Englehart was the person who developed the World Values Survey, and he went and uh, studied the evolution of values in human uh, societies around the world, asking the same questions in different societies. And what he noticed was that as societies become materially better off like as they accumulate more higher gdp per capita they tend to adopt very different kinds of cultural traits and in particular they become in general more tolerant more trusting more secular you know he calls it a modernization i guess it's a process of cultural modernization that exists and you see it pretty universally across the world that doesn't mean that historical cultural traits no longer matter it means that there is cultural change as well and so that i think creates more potential for us to overcome these barriers. One prime explanation for the development of India in recent decades is that they basically reformed and opened up to the Western world. But there's also, there was some cultural change that made India want to embrace globalization and modernity. The development of this very vibrant entrepreneurial class in India, so vibrant that the CEOs of major U.S. corporations are now descendants of people of Indian origin and Indian descent. And this wasn't really a characteristic of India. India was not known for producing major world CEOs of Fortune 500 companies uh, even 20 or 30 years ago. That's been a sea change.
0: Uh, Tell us more about the passing on of characteristics that made it possible to uh, develop. So that's one of
1: the questions that interests me the most because as soon as you start to say that historical factors still have an effect today, there's a sort of deterministic feel to it. You know, it's like you're saying that there's a historical straitjacket that limits the ability of societies that do not have a certain historical background to catch up with the ones that do. And I want to push back very strongly against that view, which is not uh, supported by any evidence. And in particular, when you look at virtually all of the innovations that influence economic outcomes today, they have spread around the world in a gradual fashion. And they've spread in a way that allowed societies that initially didn't have the benefit of these innovations to take advantage of them. I gave the example of the horse, for example. Another example is that of agriculture. But my whole research agenda has been devoted to try to understand, first, what are the factors that explain The contemporary economic outcomes, and second, how they spread around the world, how societies were able to overcome barriers to their adoption. And I have several examples I could give you of such diffusion processes. You know, I mentioned agriculture, I mentioned the horse. The horse was actually diffused from pretty much one place, you know, in Central Asia. Agriculture, we know, was invented in various places around the world and had its own little local diffusion processes from there. You can think of Mesoamerica for corn-based agriculture, the Middle East and Mesopotamia for the expansion of grains and high grass agriculture, and of course, China for the expansion of rice-based agriculture. All these inventions, quote unquote, spread around their respective regions gradually over centuries. More recently, the big innovation that caused human societies to become vastly more wealthy than they had ever been has been the Industrial Revolution and with my co-author, Enrico Spolaure, with whom I've been working for many, many years, we've documented quite carefully the diffusion of the Industrial Revolution across the world. And while the Agricultural Revolution took several millennia to spread, the Industrial Revolution took on the order of a few decades, uh, first to spread within Europe, and then around the world, a couple of centuries, I suppose, would be the order of, of time that it took. And so we really talk about how quickly it becomes possible for societies to escape the straitjacket of history and ultimately join the bandwagon of technological development. That period has shortened greatly in in recent times. It, It used to take
0: a lot longer for the wonderful things that
1: humans invent to spread around the world, and it takes a lot less time today.
0: When you talk about Mesopotamia and how it has developed over time, it's been the seat of religions. What role has religion played? Is it a barrier or is it a way that cultures have learned to develop?
1: So I'm not so much of an expert on this question. What I can tell you is that there's a vibrant debate over the role of religion as a trigger for social complexity. The view that the development of moralizing gods early in history had a role to play in the development of these societies is, is heavily debated. And so that's looking at religion as sort of a long-term historical route of development. And my co-author, Peter Turchin, who is the father of the Seychelles uh, project to gather data on complex human societies, has written a lot about this idea that the an early development of certain kinds of religion, especially having moralizing gods, was a condition for the development of complexity and i think that's heavily debated more recently i'm not quite sure how to think about the role of religion in all of this what i would say is that religion can act as a barrier if two societies have very different religions uh, it might be harder for them to exchange ideas and technologies and institutions that are conducive to wealth but i guess that's about Everything I'd be willing to say on this subject is just very complex, still very much under debate.
0: Well, it is fascinating to talk to you and to talk about how you can look at the sweep of history in order to understand such things as the development of agriculture, the development of the military, and how we argue about the television set in our living rooms. It's a fascinating subject, all of it. And Thank you so much for giving us such a interesting look at so many different things. Roman Voxiar at UCL Anderson, thanks a lot. Thank you, Warren. It was a pleasure. This has been How the World Works, podcast from UCLA Anderson. I'm Warren Alney. Thanks very much for joining us. Listen again. <music>